This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, everybody. This is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Today's episode, two guests, two excellent guests. First up, Molly McGrath, a college football and college basketball host and reporter for ESPN. If you're a fan of uh, those sports, particularly college football, you've certainly seen her work. Uh, She is with the Sean McDonough, Todd Blackledge, Todd McShay crew this year. Their first game is uh, number one Alabama and number 14 Miami on week one. And uh, Molly McGrath, if you uh, read me in The Athletic, you probably saw the piece I did with her on um, working while pregnant. And she's... um, you know, she's always very, very honest, just sort of about uh, her work and work-life balance, and that's what we got into in this uh, in this podcast. Just sort of how she's going to navigate now that uh, her son is born, um, going on the road every week. How that works with uh, her and her husband, navigating work-life decisions, uh, whether she felt internal pressure about trying to get back to ESPN, which she said, which she said she did, how it worked out regarding, um, the assignment she got. Cause obviously once Maria Taylor left that opened things up, Holly Rowe got the job with Chris Fowler and Kirk Herbstreet. And then Molly McGrath slotted in to the McDonough crew. We talk a little bit about college football protocols and what she expects this year. And then finally, what, um, you know, what's discussed in those production meetings when it comes to, uh, ESPN, on-air talent and uh, college football coaches and staff, and they got a lot more information than you might realize. So Molly McGrath is first, followed by Christopher Clary. He is the tennis writer for the New York Times, also the author of The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. And uh, Chris talks about his new book. That book's out now. You can check that out on Amazon, why he wanted to explore Roger Federer in long form, how he connected with Federer. He's been writing about him for many, many years. And what he expects from Federer heading forward. Uh, and Chris was pretty honest about that. Uh, Chris does think he's going to at least may make one more run if, uh, health permitting, but might not find, uh, might not find it easy given, uh, that the tour obviously waits for no one. So ESPN's Molly McGrath first, followed by New York times writer and author, Chris Clary coming up on the sports media podcast. 
All right. As I said at the top, uh, Molly McGrath is a college football, college basketball uh, reporter and host for ESPN. She joined that company in July 2016. You will uh, next see her, I believe, on the Alabama number one versus Miami. I think it's like number 14 or something like that. Broadcast, that's week one of the college football season. She'll be with uh, Sean McDonough, Todd McShay. Is that Todd Blackledge, Molly, who's also there? Yep. Who's, okay. Me, me, the Todds, and Sean. You, the Todds, and Sean. And Molly McGrath joins me on the Sports Media Podcast. Molly, how are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on, Richard. I have to say, I've been a big fan of your podcast. I've been a longtime listener um, back when you were with Sports Illustrated, now with The Athletic. And I'm just a really big fan of yours and the work that you do. So when you asked me to be on the podcast, it was a no-brainer. I was just so thrilled that you thought of me. Yeah, great reading off those cue cards, Molly. Thank you for that <laughs> so- solid read. I appreciate that very much. Nice. Um, I'll take the check in the mail. Yeah, <laughs> Canadian dollars now. Um, all right, so you um, here's where I want to start. You are um, returning to the college football beat after giving birth to your son at uh, roughly the beginning of uh, 2021. And so obviously all new parents have to navigate work-life decisions. Your your job actually is is maybe trickier than your average job because obviously in order for you to do it, you have to be on the road. You generally speaking you have to be on the road weekly. So um so how have you approached this? How's this going to work for you? Well, I think we're going to figure it out as we go, which uh is a scary thing to say, but we're we're new at this, right? And um I have an extremely supportive partner, my husband Max works from home. Um he works in commercial real estate investments and he also has to travel for work as well. So we're going to try to find a system that works a little bit. Um my our son Ray is now seven and a half months old. He's going to daycare uh, during the day so that my husband can get some work done. And the weight of it is going to fall on my husband during football and basketball season while I'm traveling. So it's good that he bought in and that he, um, in the beginning of our relationship, I explained to him, you know, one of our first dates, I said, you know, I'm always going to want to work. I'm not going to stop working, um, you know, even after having kids someday. And so he knew that this was a part of the deal and he's extremely supportive and we're just going to figure it out as we go. And, you know, one of the difficult parts of this year is that in a normal situation, we would have wanted um, Ray to travel with me some weekends and my mom would have come to help out or Max would have come with Ray. Uh, But with, you know, COVID and the Delta variant, that's just not the responsible thing to do. So I'm not going to be able to see my son as much. So that's going to be, I think, really difficult. And it'll be a hard part of this, but we're just going to kind of roll with it and figure it out. And we have a good support system where we live with babysitters and daycare and everything like that. So we're hoping to uh, get through our first couple seasons and just kind of go from there. Are you, um, will you try to uh, change your own travel patterns by maybe going home more uh, after that, uh, that sort of Saturday game that you might have? Although maybe there'll be weeks where you'll, you might have a Saturday game and then maybe a, a, a Monday or a midweek game, right? So that's maybe that makes it trickier for you to fly back home from whatever site you're on. Yeah. So for example, my first weekend of college football week one, Labor Day weekend, I'm doing the Alabama Miami game on Saturday. And then that Monday night, I'm doing Ole Miss Louisville. 
with Kirk Herbstreet and Reese Davis. So I'm going to stay in Atlanta for that because both of those games are the kickoff games in Atlanta. So I'm going to stay in Atlanta. And then in a normal situation, I may have gone Monday night from Atlanta to my next game. You know, I may I may have gone straight to wherever my week two game is just to keep from the back and forth of traveling. But I think I'll probably go home, uh, see my son, hug him, kiss him, spend some time with him, switch out, do some laundry, switch out my suitcase and then get on the road. So it'll be a lot busier, a lot more back and forth. But a lot of broadcasters with young families do that. They will travel cross country just to be home for eight hours and hug their family members and then get back on the road again. And that's the kind of thing that really fulfills you and your soul so that you feel like you can do your job properly. So it's worth the the travel and the back and forth if you have to do that. So listen, this is obviously um, there. There would people would feel um, pressure to get back to work in any, uh, you know, any competitive job. But mm-hmm. you really do work in a competitive industry. There are only so many on-air jobs at ESPN. There are so only so many on-air jobs in college football. You know, just keep extrapolating. There are so many on-air jobs in college football where you get to report on the best games of the week. Did you feel pressure, uh, internal pressure, external pressure about uh, coming back to work and coming back to work as soon as you could? I think, yes, uh, it's internal pressure. It wasn't external at all. It was internal pressure that I put on myself, even during my pregnancy, um, when my doctor told me I was about eight months pregnant, eight and a half months pregnant. And my doctor told me, you know, you're putting too much stress on your body, all of this travel back and forth. You're having early contractions. You could go into early labor. You need to cool it. You need to calm down. And I said, okay, but can I get one more week of work? And it's because I wanted, it it was twofold. One, I love what I do and I wanted to work and I wanted to be with my crew, but I also wanted to kind of prove myself before disappearing for seven months. You know, I felt that pressure to get as much work in on the front end so that I could get that time off with my son. And so I pushed myself a little bit too much and then watching, you know, all of the bowl games and watching the Rose Bowl game and watching the college football playoff national championship game. Those were really hard moments for me. Those were moments where maybe I was a little emotional and I was pregnant and about to give birth. And I'm crying to my husband saying, you know, I, I wish I was there. I wish I could be a part of these moments. I miss my job. And I think that the time that I was forced to have off during my pregnancy at the end of my pregnancy and during bowl season really proved to me how much I love what I do and that it is ingrained in the fabric of, of kind of who I am. I just, I just missed that side and that part of myself so much. And then lo and behold, I go into labor the night of the national championship game, Richard, like what are the odds of that? I'm watching the Alabama game. I'm watching Alabama win the national championship and I'm rooting for my peers, Maria Taylor and Allison Williams, two great friends of mine. And I'm watching them on TV And I'm having contractions and my husband is counting them down and we're trying to decide, do we go to the hospital at halftime? Should we stay home? I ended up laboring at home. Um, And so I labored at home the entire national championship game. And then right as the game was ending, we left and went to the hospital and I had my son late that night, the next morning, technically January 12th is his birthday. Um, Wow. Yeah. Which was incredible and what a great distraction to watch the national championship game while i'm laboring with my son and it was kind of the perfect 
I don't know, storybook ending to a season that I never could have imagined in terms of traveling while pregnant during a pandemic. And, you know, this is a child that we wanted for so long. So it was just all these crazy things all happening at once. Um, this is the long winded way of saying, though, that, yeah, I, I did. I put the pressure on myself to come back because I love what I do so much. And be and I've been, you know, aching, aching to get back onto a football field. So I'm so excited for for week one in those games. All right. So you mentioned um, Maria Taylor, who now obviously is with NBC. Uh, you know, I'm not going to um, I'm not going to ask you about that situation because, quite frankly, uh, that's not your job. You're not you're not management. That stuff's above your quote unquote above your pay grade. But where you can't answer uh, and perhaps you'll do it as diplomatically as possible. But where you can't answer is um, Maria Taylor leaving ESPN. Molly, as you know, opens up or opened up. Uh, job assignments. Holly Rowe ultimately gets um, the position of working with Chris Fowler and Kirk Herbstreet on the, you know, the quote unquote A team or the, the the top team. And so given that Holly Rowe obviously worked previously in college football, this opens up all assignments for others as you sort of head down the list of college football games. Um, when Maria Taylor left, um, you know, as, as, as best you can, or, or as, as much as you're willing to share, how did, how does it work for someone like you when these openings exist and you now there'll be, you know, there'll be openings on, on teams, you know, does ESPN management talk to you? Do you, are you proactive and, and call them and say, Hey, I'd like to get one of these spots. How does that work when a big opening like that comes up? Yeah. When it, when a big opening like that comes up, it's a domino effect, right? They have to figure out who's going to be at the top. And then that affects everything trickling down after that. Right. So that was the big piece of the puzzle that they were trying to figure out. And that's why assignments, you know, came out a little bit later this season because they're trying to figure out who would fit best in that role. And this is all I'll say about that situation is that Maria is an incredibly talented broadcaster and she earned and deserved every single role that she had. And she left a huge hole in um, in our company in terms of the things that she was able to do and the roles that she had. So that was I, I don't envy the position that our bosses were in to try to figure out who would bet best fit in that role. And it's also one of those things where you want to show that you're a go getter. You want to strive for more in your career. So you'd be crazy not to go for a role like that if it's open. Whether or you believe that you'll get it or not, I think every single person in my position put their hand up and said, hey, I want to be considered. And that's something I did. I said, I would like to be considered. You know, I think that I've, I've worked hard. I've worked with the company. I've covered college football for nearly a decade. And, and I want to be considered for this position. And I kind of left it at that. So you just make it known and you reach out to the bosses and you have conversations with people like Lee Fitting and Scott Ackles and and. and or Steve Ackles, sorry. And you kind of have those conversations. And then from there, they're going to make the decision that they've made and your body of work is going to speak for itself. Um, so, you know, I made it known like, Hey, I'd like to be considered for that, but you know what? I absolutely love working with the crew that I'm with. Sean McDonough is one of the best to do it. He's so talented. He's a wonderful friend and a huge advocate of mine. And I have felt so fortunate to work with him and Todd Blackledge and Todd McShay. They were there for me and big advocates for me during my pregnancy. Um, and they're like brothers to me. So my big thing was first and foremost, I want to be back with my crew, but I think I should be considered for this job because I want that kind of respect. And I want to be regarded as one of the best because that's what we're all striving for.
And, you know, when they went with Holly, it was, you know what? I am so happy for Holly and good for her. And there was no sense of disappointment in not getting that role because Holly has been in this industry for decades. She is so talented. She's the best to do it. And she deserves that. So I'm really happy for her that she's getting this opportunity. When did you learn that you were going to be assigned to the McDonough Blackledge McShea group? I think I knew that it was going to be a possibility with conversations that I had had with our bosses early on in the summer, like most likely you'll be back with them and you should be with your crew. And that made me really happy. And that was something that, you know, in stepping away in my pregnancy, I worried, is my spot going to be there for me when I come back? And that was a conversation that I had with Lee Fitting when I told him that I was pregnant. He said, your job will be waiting for you when you get back. You don't need to worry about it. And I believed him and he stood true to that. Like my bosses could not have been more supportive and they're, they're fathers. And they said, you know, your job will be waiting for you. And it was, so I felt really good about that. Um, that, that, that was the truth of it. And I was kind of assured that throughout the summer. And then when Maria left, it was kind of up in the air and they're trying to figure things out. Um, so there was a little question mark there, but I knew for the most part that I would be back with Sean and the Todd's. The, um, is, will it work where uh, Todd McShay will have one sideline or re responsible for one team and you'll be responsible for the other team? So Todd and I work really well together because we have a unique way of doing it. Usually it is that way that Todd, you know, would get Alabama and I would get Miami for the week one game. And then we would split sidelines. And I think maybe with some bigger games, like with a playoff semifinal game, we might do that. We might end up doing something like that. But Todd is an analyst. He's essentially, we view him as an extension of the booth. He is a part of the booth. He has an open microphone. He can jump in at any point. So he's giving analysis and he's just standing from a different vantage point at field level to give that kind of analysis and to size guys up and to look at them and talk about their draft grades and say, you know, Bryce Young's, it says he's six foot, but he really stands like he's about 5'10", 5'11". And I can see this by sizing him up by standing next to him. And he can give certain analysis from field level. Whereas I am the true reporter in that situation. I'm doing the interviews. I'm doing all of the injury updates. And with that crew, because there's so many voices, and we did this with uh, Steve Levy and Brian Greasy, where my role was a little bit different than the most reporter roles where I don't tell stories from earlier in the week. I don't do as many of the um, pre-packaged stories. I'm more eyes and ears, what's happening right in front of me. And I'm just reacting and I'm get, trying to get news as much as possible for these guys, because there's so many voices on this broadcast. You really have to give something unique in order to stand out. And Sean McDonough and Steve Levy are some of the best at telling stories. So if it's a story that I believe they can tell, I'll give it to them. I'll say, Sean, here's this really good, feel good piece about this guy. I think you should tell this story. And I'll try to get certain things from what I'm overhearing him saying to his teammates on the field to add to that. And so that's the way that I can bring an extra layer and be unique for, for that crew. And so that's why it works out that Todd and I have very different roles and he doesn't do the other sideline. He doesn't, he's not the other reporter. He's an analyst and I cover the whole field. So I'm doing both sidelines and I'm constantly circling and looking for news. You probably have more, obviously, you'd, you would have more details of this um, if we were uh, taping this one week from now. But you're doing, um, you're doing Alabama, Miami uh, at, uh, in Atlanta for the Chick-fil-A kickoff. And so if, from what you understand now, 
in terms of uh, production meetings with coaches and players, in terms of being able to attend practices? Like, have you been given um, what the protocol what the protocols will be for the host broadcaster amid obviously all sort of larger COVID considerations? Yeah, I think I think the big thing I, I know within our company, um, everyone is vaccinated. So we're a fully vaccinated crew that's traveling together. And when we're indoors for production meetings, for production meetings with coaches or production meetings, even with our crew or even driving in a car, we're wearing a mask. So we're wearing a mask indoors at all times. And then when we're outdoors uh, covering a game in a stadium, an outdoor stadium, then we don't need to wear a mask. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what we do at Mercedes-Benz because it's an indoor dome. So I imagine I'll probably have to wear a mask during that game, which I'm now just realizing for the first time, like, oh, I'm probably going to have to wear a mask for that game. And maybe perhaps when I do some on-camera things, I'll be able to take it off if I'm six feet away from my cameraman. But ESPN and the Disney company is taking this very seriously, and they're being extremely cautious. And the COVID protocols are pretty strict because we want this season to go as smoothly as possible. And we want these conferences and these teams to trust us. So that's why it's so important. So we'll be masked up for most of the time. How have you found, uh, how, how long have you worked in college football now in terms of a reporter? We're talking like five years, six years? I think this will be my eighth or ninth season. Yeah. Okay. All right. My, my apologies for not getting there. <laughs> that's okay. Um, so, how you know? I realize that each program is going to be different. Like you know, I imagine Alabama is just different than how they do it in uh, you know Bowling Green or Buffalo or Louisville. Right. Um, especially Alabama, obviously, given that the, it's been the same coach for the whole time. As it, it generally, so sort of writ large, as a general rule, how forthcoming do you find college coaches, college staffs to be? in these production meetings to you as the host broadcaster? I, I have my sort of uh, analysis of how they are with the, you know, the general press that they deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. But, you know, you guys are paying for access. You're paying billions of dollars for access. So I, I'm, because I've never been in a college football production meeting, I wonder for your purposes, like how much do they, they give you? Because I do have a sense of how much they give the NFL guys. I don't really know how much they give the college uh, reporters. I think they give a lot of good information. There's a lot of off the record information given for context, right? Like a coach will say something. He'll be like, oh, every, every meeting for the most part, I would say nine times out of 10 to start a meeting, a coach will say, well, don't repeat this, but blah, blah, blah. Like they'll say something about a player not being tough enough or a guy that doesn't go to class or, you know, just the little details that help give you context about a player and who a person is or about their defense and things like that, that a coach will tell you that you would never repeat in a broadcast because first of all, it's off the record. And second, it's not really fair to say those things out loud in a public forum, but coaches give you those kind of things to give you context so that you can cover a team and a program um, a little bit more accurately and you can understand the intricacies of that program. So in those senses, you do get a lot of um, honesty, but there are a lot of coaches that, you know, are BSing you the whole time. It just, it just depends. There are some coaches, it doesn't matter if it's Alabama or Bowling Green or Tulane. It just depends on the head coach. That guy will either 
be very honest with you and we'll give you on the record versus off the record information, or, you know, the entire time they're kind of like the cheesy mayor and they won't give you real honest answers. And you leave that kind of meeting feeling like you really didn't get a good sense of what the program is. And you can tell when people aren't being honest with you. So we kind of leave those meetings kind of rolling our eyes and say, all right, well, we'll try to, and in that sense, you try to talk to local uh, broadcasters or some of the local beat reporters to get a better feel for what's going on within that program. So you can tell their stories accurately. How much will they, how much will coaches uh, tell the play-by-play person and lead analyst about what they're planning to call? Like, do they ever get into, here's how we feel like we're going to attack this team in the first uh, series or the second series of the game? You know, what's amazing. We've had coaches who have literally outlined their first 10 plays of the game for us. Like, here are my first 10 plays. And they will bring it up on a screen And they'll show us exactly what plays they're going to call to start out the game to get their quarterback comfortable and to get their offense rolling. So some coaches are extremely open to the point where we know exactly what's coming. Other coaches will say, I'm not going to tell you that. (laughs) So it's really a coach by coach basis. Um, I think most people fall in the middle, like giving us the first 10 plays of the game is one extreme saying I'm not going to tell you is another extreme. Most coaches fall in the middle where they'll say, you know, we have a package for this guy to, to come in at Wildcat. And we have this and probably within the first half, like they'll tell us within the, you know, by the second quarter, you should see this other quarterback for a, a couple series. And they'll tell us things like that. So we know what to expect. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Um, all right. A couple more things here. You, uh, you mentioned that if it's an outdoor stadium, you're likely on the sideline, not masked up. Um, do you have any trepidation about, uh, interacting, uh, in the stands at all with fans and or people, um, you don't know, or is it likely that whatever stand up you do on the field, you're not necessarily going to be that close to, uh, uh, to the stands where that becomes an issue? Yeah, you know, it was common before COVID for me to go into the stands to find family members of a player. You know, I would identify, are you Bryce Young's mother? Okay, and what's your daughter's name? And you would have conversations with those people and I would do a quick interview with them off camera to try to get some context to cover their son properly. So I would go into the stands a good amount before a game, especially for my director to help him get certain shots. Last year, we didn't do that very much at all. Um, if I had to, I would go up there and do it masked up and I would keep a good distance. I think it'll be similar this year where we won't do as much of that. And I, I just won't be spending a lot of time. I think with Disney security in general, they don't want us going up, you know, into the stands with a bunch of people. We don't know if they're vaccinated or not around us. So we'll probably err on the side of caution with that. Um, so I'm just going to stick to what I'm doing on the field. And, you know, I was pretty cautious and nervous about it last year because I would go to some of the games, especially in the SEC, you know, states like Mississippi and Alabama have very low vaccination 
records right now. And when I would go to those places, you would see, look up in the stands, no one was wearing a mask. And so there were people who were trying to talk to me and, Hey, can I ask you a question? And trying to pull me over. And I would just say, no, I'm sorry. I have to keep my distance. I was pregnant at the time. So I was super cautious. And I think with a young child, I'm going to be even more cautious in terms of keeping my distance from people and wearing a mask when I can, because it's a long season and you want to be able to travel and keep working. And in order to do that, you have to stay healthy. How do you, how, how has social media been for you? Um, I think it's a challenge for anybody in a public position. It feels like it's much more of a sick, not feels like it. I mean, I shouldn't say feels like it. It is far more, uh, challenging and could be a, a much, much more toxic for high profile women in the sports media. So whether it's Twitter or uh, Instagram or Facebook or whatever you're on, what what has been your experience in that space over the last two years? I agree with you that it is especially cruel to women in the sense that people focus mostly on the way that a woman looks versus the work that she's doing or the, the, the content that's coming out of her mouth. So in that sense, um, it sucks, you know, and you know, this last year when I was pregnant, there were people and trolls who made comments about my body and the way that I looked when I was pregnant on camera that rubbed me the wrong way. And in the same vein, there's a little part in the back of my head because my pregnancy was so public, which I'm glad I'm glad, Richard, that my pregnancy was so public because it made me an outlet for other pregnant women in my position. Like I joked to my husband the other day, I'm the patron saint of pregnant sideline reporters. Like I'm getting calls left and right <laughs> from people who in the industry who are pregnant and they want advice on from everything from where did you get your clothes? Because I don't fit in my clothes anymore to how did you speak to the bosses about this? And, and so I love being that outlet and I'm happy that I, my pregnancy was so public because women now come to me and they feel like they have someone to come to who's been through it before. So in that sense, it was totally worth it. But in the back of my mind, there's a little insecurity where people are going to comment on the way that I look. And they're going to comment on, you know, inevitable weight gain that comes with coming off of having your first child and the, the ways that I look different. Every fiber of my being is different after having a child. So people are going to focus on maybe how I look different, especially being a woman with, with weight changes and having a child, with, with aging, things like that. People are especially cruel. Um, and... I'm a little in the back of my head. I'm a little bit worried about it, but I also know that I have confidence in myself and that I, I just can't pay attention to those things. So those kind of things will be muted. I'm not going to pay attention to them, but it is something that women think about and that women worry about. And I just don't think that that's fair, that that should be a constant part of our reality in our professional world. Yeah. It sucks that you have to deal with that. Um, is, but is the reality also that you can't not be on social media, just given ultimately what your what your job is and that let's be honest there's a real you know there's a real monetization of you putting your work out for people to see you know like for the for the larger public to see for bosses to see for potential employers down the road to see so that sucks because i feel like in many ways you have to be active or if you are not active it ends up you know what i mean it ends up hurting yeah. you and what your job potential is. And generally speaking, I know as we've talked about, I mean, there are men who obviously face a lot of shit, but the, the, it's just, it's really honestly nothing compared to what women face because the, um, uh, 
the looks-based commentary just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't come close to what, what women in the business have to deal with. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think it is important to be active on social media and it's just a part of the job. Like I just look at it like it's a part of my job. And when, after having my son and I took some time off, from work in general, I wasn't as active on social media just because I needed a little break from all of that. And I think that's totally healthy to do. But during football season, I have to be active there. I have to be approachable. You kind of need to be approachable to the fan and people need to kind of get to know you in that way. Sorry if you can hear my son crying. Look at that ca- cameo. For, uh, <laughs> Ray's waking up from his nap. Uh, work-life balance. It's beautiful, isn't it? Um, but yeah, so I just, I think that there's an importance in being approachable and in having a voice and having an opinion about these things. But I also think it's okay and it's healthy to stay, take a step back every once in a while. But I do feel a pressure to have social media presence because of my job. And I also do think it's a really important part of my job to do those things. So it's, I don't know, it's just one of those necessary evils, if you will. All right, final two. Uh, am I correct? Did you ever work with Pat McAfee? I on, did. On a, on a crew? Yeah, I did. Uh, Thursday night crew with you, him, Matt Hasselbeck, and Adam right. Amin. That's right. I, I, just, I wonder uh, when you look at uh, where Pat's career has gone. I mean, the guy, he's like now has a massive job when it comes to the WWE as a commentator, in addition to, uh, you know, his own sort of YouTube stuff. So like kind of like, uh, you know, in terms of like sort of a post-athlete career, he's really kind of had an amazing, an amazing run. And I don't know, I mean, I wonder if you saw that kind of, um, if you, if you, I don't know, if, when you were working with him, did you, did you see that potential in terms of his popularity uh, which where it seems to be today. Absolutely. Pat's a star. Um, it's funny. You, you work with certain people who are recognizable to the common fan and to, you know, people on the street. And Pat is one of them. I would say Pat McAfee and Todd McShay are the two most stopped people that I work with. Like people stop them on the street and say, I love your work. I love what you do. What do you think about this tight end? What do you think about this? And I think that Pat has carved a really great niche for himself because he is so relatable. And he has that kind of Pittsburgh style of blue collar and I'm a normal guy and I'm here with you. And he has this following that identifies with him. And he has a wonderful way of relating to people. Um, You know, doesn't matter what they do, if they're an executive or if they're, you know, working in construction, he has a way of relating to these people. And so he has this huge following. And one thing that he does really well uh, that I think is really valuable and everyone can take a piece of this in what they do in their day-to-day life is that he speaks to someone and he makes them feel important. You know, there's the saying that you you don't remember what people say, but you remember how they made you feel. And Pat has a way of making people around him feel important and feel big. And so that is why he is so dynamic and so likable. And he's just a total star. And I think the sky's the limit for him. I absolutely loved working with him. Yeah, that is like the, the if you can sort of master that skill to make people feel like 
you know, you are the center of, of their universe at that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, an incredible business skill and incredible, any skill, I guess. All right. Uh, last one goes back specific to you. You have hosting experience, obviously, in addition to working on the sidelines of college football and college basketball, where do you, um, you know, where, where does that interest, uh, for you sit right now? Are you hoping to continue as at least in the near term, um, a mix of these two things? Cause you have both skill sets. Uh, do you want to stick for the moment currently to being live on site? How do you, you know, it's very hard, honestly, for anybody to approach a, a career in this business on a five year kind of plan, but let's right. just think short term from like one to one to three years. What, what is your sort of hope and intention, um, uh, over the next couple of years in terms of, uh, in terms of your own professional career? Yeah, I think uh, first and foremost, it's incredibly valuable to have a diverse skill set and to be able to do a bunch of different things. That's why someone like Maria Taylor was so valuable to the company because she was a host and a reporter and had such a diverse skill set. And so that's something that I strive for and I believe that I have. It's just um, at, at ESPN it's hard to get those opportunities. It's such a large company. And I, I had incredible opportunities at Fox Sports where I was on a daily show. I was a co-host of a daily show called America's Pregame, you know, Monday through Friday at 6 Eastern. I did that. And I was a sideline reporter. And I loved that I was able to flex both muscles and to practice both things um, on a daily basis, essentially. And then with ESPN, I've been given some wonderful opportunities. It's just not as consistent. It's not like a Monday through Friday thing that I've gotten as much. Um, but that's something that I would want to continue to build upon. And there's also a comfortability just with reps and doing those things over and over again and being a part of something. I think that's one thing that I miss in terms of hosting and being a part of a show is that you feel like you're really a part of a family when you're a part of a daily show or something like that, because you're working towards the same goal with the same group of people every day. You do feel that way with a broadcast crew when you're covering games, but it's, you know, you're all traveling in and then you all travel out to your different corners of the country. When you're working on a show, it's much, it's a much deeper connection. So I do, I miss working on shows and daily shows and I miss hosting. Um, that's something that I definitely I've, voiced wanting to do more of, and I want to continue to work towards those things. And this year was definitely a slower year for me in terms of, um, you know, my maternity leave, but usually I'm hosting on site for the women's college world series. And that's one of my favorite assignments I've ever been given because I work with these incredible female athletes and analysts. And that's just one of my, my favorite things that I can do. And it's on site. So it's a good mix of the remote production, but I'm able to host and flex those muscles a little bit and, and get that experience. So I'm hoping, especially this next year, I'll be able to do more of that. Yeah, not to mention the women's uh, college world series, incredible viewership mm -hmm. uh, play. Like if you can be part of that broadcast, you're you're on a broadcast that's going to average between a million and a half and two million viewers. And I think a lot of the general public just doesn't know how many people watch that sport. Um, and the more it gets on ABC, as opposed to let's say ESPN or ESPN two, those numbers. Uh, that his numbers will grow. Molly, you're also one of the rare people, by the way. You know, a lot of people go from ESPN to Fox. <laughs> you went from Fox to you went from Fox to you went you did it the other way. You went from Fox to ESPN. Um, so you're a unique uh, 
in that setting. All right, is there anything else you want to add before I let you go? You're a busy woman. Your kid has already had a cameo on this uh, broadcast. I, I, I do have experience with babies. Of course uh, you do. Not nearly as much as my wife, but, but, but trust me, there's nothing better in life than when a kid sleeps. But then when that kid wakes up, it's it is go time. So I understand if uh, if that's the case on your end. Yeah, I can see him from where I'm sitting right now. But Dad is taking good care of him. I think I think the biggest thing that um, I don't know that I want people to know and that I think should be shared is it's it's really ha- it's really hard being a parent. You know this. It changes every fiber of your being. It changes it changed who I am personally in terms of what's important to me. It's changed me physically. I feel like my body chemistry even is completely different after having a child. I'm a different human being. Um and essentially for the past 7 months I've been a stay-at-home mom. I've been taking care of our child, you know, and I haven't been traveling, especially early on when he was really young because of the COVID issues and the global pandemic that we're still in. Um, I didn't travel as much. So I got some of the experience of being a stay-at-home mom and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I have so much respect for women and men who choose to stay at home and be with their children and focus on their family because it's really hard day in and day out. And um, I feel very fortunate that I got that experience. I also feel very fortunate that I do have my career as an outlet. And I think that in being able to travel and work and being away from my son is going to be extremely hard, but I do think it'll make me a better mother. I think filling my cup will make me a better person for my son. And I want him to see that. I want him to see mom working and, you know, grinding and to see the sacrifice of that. So um, it, it's it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be really hard. Um, and I don't know how it's going to go, but my husband and I are going to figure it out. And I feel very fortunate that I've had the opportunity um, to stay at home this long that I've been able to with my son, but also to be able to get back on the road and get back to work. I just, I feel very blessed. I'm very excited for this season. Yeah, that's well said. Armal, you sound very centered and uh, and in a good space. Now you're entering, of course, the world of, of uh, sports broadcasting. So Godspeed, John Glenn. Uh, Molly McGrath is a college football reporter, college basketball reporter, college football host, college basketball host. She is currently assigned to the Sean McDonough, Todd Blackledge, Todd McShay. Actually, we should say Molly McGrath group. It's not just those. You're not assigned to their group. You are part. You are part of their group. <laughs> they were do. They're doing number one Alabama versus number fourteen. My, boy, I sound like ESPN PR. This is annoying me. Number one <laughs> Alabama versus number fourteen Miami. Uh, that's a Saturday game on that first week on ABC. That actually should be a really good. You may have the best game of the week, Molly. To be honest, uh, we'll see how that plays out. And so you can follow Molly obviously throughout the season with um, with that group. And uh, she'll be doing uh, among the biggest games uh, every week for ESPN, ABC, ESPN2. Molly, it's great to catch up with you. Uh, I'm so happy um, that things are going well with your child. You were very, very honest with me, obviously, when you were going through your pregnancy. And uh, and I appreciate that. And it seemed like people who read that piece really appreciated that. So, uh, so best of luck. Stay healthy. And thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me. And thanks for sharing my story through my pregnancy. And uh, should be a fun season. Let's go get it. 
At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. All right, as I said at the top, Christopher Clary is the author of The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. If you are a tennis fan, um, you've absolutely read his work, I'm sure, in the New York Times or in the uh, IHT, if you happen to be uh, abroad. And very pleased to be joined by Chris Clary. Chris, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely. All right. Well, cra- congratulations on the book. Uh, a pretty fascinating subject. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to see um, a lot of uh, a lot of Roger during my days at Sports Illustrated covering tennis. And so here's where I want to start. Um, there's been so much written about Roger Federer, as you know, including uh, including volumes by you in uh, the various publications where they have published your work. So what did you hope to do by exploring him in long form? You know, I think it was just the sense that I had left so much on the cutting room table over the years. That was definitely part of it. I had interviewed him so many times and watched him in so many situations. And I, and yeah, I put it together, you know, piece by piece over the years, a thousand words by a thousand words, or maybe more like 1200 words by 1200 words, as my editors would complain. But I mean, it's um, basically, I just felt like I wanted to try to capture all that in a narrative. And I also, which the book doesn't show you on the cover with him in action there or wherever, wherever you're buying it, if, if you're seeing the profile picture in the UK edition. Yes, it's about him. He's the main threat. But it really, it's about this era in men's tennis. There's a lot of Novak in it, a lot of Rafa in it, a lot of Roddick and Safin and Hewitt, people like that from the early years of Roger's career. And I really wanted to kind of capture the whole era or at least get a start on it because it's been so tremendous to cover these rivalries and these twists and turns and these guys... Uh, areas of dominance and things like that. So I just felt like I, I had a lot I wanted to try to explore and I wanted to go back and kind of do it in a really um, formal and organized way and have my pulse be low for once when I started at least and go at it. When did you decide to do this book? When, uh, if we're going to be, if we're going to sort of begin at the, the book's conception, when was that? Well, I think I've been thinking about it as his career has gone on and I've just kept getting great access to Roger. It's not me. It's the New York times is getting the access, but I mean, it's, I've been in a position to spend a lot of time with him across in many different places and many different settings and many forms of transport, <laughs> which is the sports writer method, right? Where you're in, you're in the plane, train or automobile. And um, even some when we weren't moving, which was nice too. So it's just, it's been really a, I just feel like uh, as I got more and more of those opportunities, I felt like at some point I was going to want to do it. Did I want to wait till he finished? Um, that was a possibility. And I just realized that I think if I didn't do it relatively soon, once he was getting to the later stages of his career, I might miss the opportunity. And I really wanted to take a, take a shot at it 
And I really felt after the loss to Novak in the 2019 Wimbledon final, that was such a devastating loss, but a great match that his main body of work was done. And so it was a good time to go at it. And then I think the, uh, the pandemic gave me the runway, you know, it's obviously not for a good reason at all, but it was a, a chance to really take a break from the times for several months and, and get to the writing. How many, uh, at, at the end of the uh, reporting process, how many people did you interview? You know, this is going to sound nerdy, but I actually know the number. For the book itself, I interviewed 82 people. Yeah, that's not nerdy at all. Almost every, honestly, every author I've ever had on here knows that number cold. So, <laughs> that's good uh, to know. There you yeah, go. You've, you've, uh, you've, joined, uh, you've joined a very good group. I actually had uh, uh, my friend Jeff Perlman is sort of very famous for knowing exactly how many people he's uh, interviewed for all his uh, books. And a lot of times it's a very like random odd number, like 239 or something like that, you know. So it's interesting. I'm glad you know that uh, number cold. Um, you mentioned this. Rogers granted you a remarkable amount of access over the past two decades, uh, beginning in the early 2000s. Obviously, you work for a very, very well-known, prestigious publication. But also, at the end of the day, if Rogers not enjoying um, your company or if he doesn't respect or trust you, you're not getting that access. Um, so why do you think you were able to connect with him as uh, as subject writer? You know, there's a utilitarian aspect to it, for sure, in the sense that Yes, it's the New York Times. So he was interested in, as a European athlete from a small European country, you know, with this dominant game and at least for a little while and um, great role in the sport. He wanted to expand his horizons commercially and and find, you know, an American, North American public, if you will. So that was certainly a big factor for sure. And I'd worked with Tony Godsek, who became his agent um, around 2005 in that range there, 2006. So I worked with, worked with Tony with his previous clients and, and had a good working relationship. And I think when Tony took over with Roger, I'm sure that was part of the, the connection as well. And I think basically, you know, he's an empath and I really enjoyed sort of delving into different things with him that weren't just about tennis, obviously, but I think I'm not an empath to that degree at all, but I think I have an empathetic side to me, like a lot of journalists do. And I think that was a connection as well. We both were interested in looking behind the scenes a bit at, at the era, at his game, and people that have been important for him, and also I, you know, I, my wife's French, and so I managed to learn pretty good French, and so I think there was also that connection being multilingual and based in Europe as well. So I think that was uh, all those were factors, but I, I think you'd have to ask him that question to find the real answer to it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I've given obviously you've had hundreds, if not thousands, of interviews with Federer over the years, specifically for this book. How many hours did you speak with him where it was specifically tied to this book? That's, that's important to, to underscore. There were, there were no interviews for this book. This, okay. as, a, as a New York Times reporter, and I'm not allowed to cooperate with anybody for a book. It's, it's very, very clear delineation. There have been some issues with that of late. And um, yeah, there can be no cooperation or you know, in terms of any kind of book agreement or thing like that. And I felt, I felt like he's always kept his distance from the books that have been written about him in terms of not wanting to get uh, to give one favor over another. I think that was a smart policy on his, on his part. And so for this book, I let him know I was doing it. I would have loved for him to help me fact check some things and go back and, you know, confirm or deny. He didn't get involved, but I think I had so much opportunity to talk to him across the whole arc of his career. And I had, you know, pretty good access to everybody around him all the way through that period as well. And I got, went back to a lot of them for the book and there was not any obstruction there. So I, I felt like it was a uh, I had more than, more than enough for what I needed to do to tell the story the way I wanted to. 
Merka Federer is someone who really, I mean, honestly, I don't remember the last time she gave an interview. You probably would more than me, at least one that's sort of been uh, published. I don't think she's very active on social media. Um, were you able to, um, were you able to talk to her one-on-one? And if not, um, were you able to work around that where maybe you talked to people who Merka was close to? Because I would think that that would be obviously one of the best sources to sort of find out what Roger Federer is truly all about. Yeah. I mean, I think that is the missing link in all, in all of our books at this point is that Merka hasn't done anything. I don't think of any substance with a, you know, that I'm aware of probably since 2005 or 2006, she gave an interview to Keep, the French paper at one point. And since then, maybe there've been some things in, in general interest magazines or those sorts of things, but uh, someone trying to get to the heart of Roger, she hasn't given an interview of any sort that I can for well over a decade. And I did, I did try to reach out to her and, and no, that wasn't happening, but I tried, I had talked to her early in, in Roger's career at times. So I had some of that. And then people that I knew in the game, obviously been around her a lot. People like, you know, Paul Anacone in particular, who coached uh, Roger for several years and knew Mirka well and Jose Higueras and people like that. And Peter Lundgren as well, who was, uh, hasn't talked too much in recent years and he talked for the book. So that was all helpful to get to get a sense of Mirka in the round, as were a lot of Roger's friends like Mikael Lammer and Eva Legro, people like that. So I feel like I got a good peek, but I think we'll have to wait for Roger's autobiography whenever that comes to uh, have Mirka on the record talking about all these years. And that it'll be interesting to read what she has to say. The, you know, one of the things, and again, you, I mean, I just may not be um, aware of the people who have, uh, you would obviously given you've covered this, but from both, when I wrote about tennis to just sort of being an outside observer, whether it's Murat Safin or Andy Roddick, Andy Murray, Rafa Nadal, Novak, whatever, I, I have not seen anyone who sort of played a principal role on the other side of the net against Roger Federer, who ultimately didn't have pretty good things to say about him. Good things to say, obviously, about his game, but beyond that, just sort of good things to say about him as a person, which honestly is would almost be incredible, Chris, if you sort of float. Like, there were people who, like, thought Michael Jordan was an asshole. I mean, they were they thought he was the greatest player of all time, but, you know, you can find people to sort of talk about Jordan. Same thing with, you know, Kobe or LeBron. But, like, Federer, uh, you can correct me, but, like, he's one of these unique individuals where it seems like the people on the other side of the court from him, like, res- respect him to the highest degree. When you interviewed all these people, and I know you talked to Roddick and Safin, et cetera, like, was that the case or... Am I romanticizing this a little bit? No, the vast majority, it's, it's really uh, respect and positivity. You're right. There have been some swipes through the years. I mean, even Rafa took a swipe at Roger in the Australian Open during a period of sort of ATP political tension where he, he said that, you know, Roger always wanted to look good and let the other guys do the bad work. And he liked to have his public image out there. So there's those sorts of comments. And there was, there was some, uh, some friction there at times. And then obviously with Novak, there's been some friction. And I think also there's some of the French players get tired of, you know, me, Roger getting the, the court assignments that he wants and the time that he wants. And that's sort of helped him keep his spot. So you hear grumbling, but really on the, on the whole, considering how exposed he has been to public and peer review for such a long time, it's a remarkably positive overall impression. And I think the reason for that is he really, I, I don't know. I never covered Michael Jordan except for a couple games, you know, against the Lakers way back in the day. But I, I get the sense that Michael Jordan would sort of bring Michael Jordan wherever he went. And Roger Federer's not like that. Roger, Roger's somebody who will 
adjust and adapt. That's one of his strengths and his character traits. And he can, he can relate in a probably a different way to the guy who is changing the towels in the U S open locker room to, uh, you know, uh, Prince Albert of Monaco. I mean, it's just going to be, he's able to sort of be, it wasn't always as clearly, it was, it wasn't always clear. He was good at that from the very early years when he was a bit rough around the edges, but very quickly he became very adept at that. at sort of changing the chip and being able to adapt to his audience or his person in front of him and, and make that person feel as if they have his full attention. And he's somebody who I really have watched in a lot of different settings, and he he gets it. He understands, and I think he also feels it. I don't think it's feigned. It might be learned and acquired, and maybe his parents reminded him a billion times before he went out into the tour to, to be that way. But it is something that seems innate to me, and he really adapts to the people he's around. And and there's a lot of different Roger Federer's. Not to uh, not to be too cliche here, but uh, you know, one of the things that has sort of always struck me about Federer is that he 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 really sort of has a lot of defining characteristics of what you think somebody from Switzerland would would be like. Like, he, he never came off to me like an American athlete. Maybe some would think, well, you know, he, he likes the commercialization or he likes money, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, I don't know. I, feel, I always felt like his demeanor felt very distinctly Swiss to me. And I wonder, um, from sort of examining him now, like writ large, um, how much of just how he was brought up, how much of where he was brought up, do you think ultimately determined who he, who he became? He is a bit of a chameleon. It's interesting. And, and you have to remember, he's not a pure Swiss Swiss guy in the sense that, yes, his father was from you know, semi-rural Switzerland, but his mother was born and raised in South Africa, apartheid in South Africa as well, which is a, which is a you know, significant chunk of the book. We talk about that. And I feel like uh, that shaped him a lot. I think he's, he didn't have a typical Swiss mentality. And in some ways, being around him, and a lot of Swiss people over the years, the Swiss are can be great company, no doubt about it. They aren't anywhere near as, I think, as a reserved and, and state as their general impression sometimes people have of, of, the, of the country and the people. But he really is an extrovert. So I think the American side is that sort of easy contact, sociability, kind of life of the locker room sort of thing. You know, I think Americans are viewed by Europeans as some, sometimes extroverted to a fault. And I feel like uh, Roger does fit that bill a little bit more than the average Swiss. But the part that is Swiss, and he'll tell you this too, is I think he just he's very anchored in the mountains. He likes the you know the old stones of European cities. A lot of his friends, um, people that he's close with, go way back, and he's still in connection with them. So there's a lot of that as well. People like Severin Luti, who's been his coach for a long time, but was really his friend and contact from his teenage years. People like Allegro, Eva Allegro, Mikhail Lammer. Those people that he's known forever and they are still in his life. And even Mirka, who he didn't just meet at the Olympics. He, she, he met her before that when they were in Bielbien at the uh, Swiss Tennis Federation Training Center. So a lot of people in his life have a long-standing connection to him. And that's, I think, more of a Swiss thing. And I think something he likes about Mirka and he talked about with me is that she does go way back. She predates his celebrity and his number oneness and all those sorts of things. Part of it is very Swiss, I think. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
from the launcher online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odysseypodcast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash odysseypodcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash odysseypodcast. All right, a couple more here. Um, you know, this is something uh, uh, I used to sort of uh, ask my uh, my old Sports Illustrated colleague, John Wertheim, a lot about. And uh, and Scott Price, too, is like sort of like one of the fun things we'd sort of like fantasy play when we were sitting at the uh, U.S. Open late at night, as you were very, very familiar with us as the night goes on and on. <laughs> we and both on. are. We were yeah. sort of across the aisle from each other for a lot of years there. Exactly. And so, like, I always sort of like try to figure out, like, are what players are going to stick around? Um, even if they're not essentially a factor in every tournament or every major, like who's going to sort of stick around and just play for the, you know, the cliche of just because they love the sport or they, they love the, they love that life. I never would have predicted Venus turned out to be that, but she has, but I, I have to be honest, Chris, I have no feel for Federer. I, I don't know, um, if he would be someone who would be okay about like, getting to the quarters of majors and and that's it or you know maybe occasionally putting a run in a at an ATB event but really not a factor on any kind of week to week basis you're probably the best person right now in the world who can answer this but um let's say the surgery goes well let's see he you know he is able health wise to sort of go one more time does he strike you as somebody who would come back um if he if he was not a you know a top 10 kind of factor every week if he was just you know, I don't want to say just another guy, but someone who's, let's say, like a top 40 kind of player. That's a great question. I think he's not convinced yet deep down that he can't do it. And I think, obviously, the knee was bothering him more than he let on once he came back again this most recent time this season. So I still, in his mind, I'm sure he feels like he hasn't really given this comeback the fair shot that it deserves. And he also, let's face it, his last really meaningful match was that, final loss to Novak at the Wimbledon in 2019, which wasn't that long ago, really, in terms of the amount of tennis that's been played since then. And the guy had two match points on his serve, and he should have won the match. So in his mind, as a champion, I think he's still convinced he can do it. I don't think he can. Um, and I think he, if he comes back, and I hope he does whatever works for him, I mean, he's earned that right, as all great athletes or all athletes do. They, should do, they pick their own endgame if they can. I think you will find out quickly that it's going to be very hard to be competing in those final rounds for titles anymore. And I, I, I just, I sense the thing is turning. The young guys are, are coming on. They're calling them the little four now, which is kind of funny. 
um, Zverev, Medvedev, Sissipas, and you can put Rublev in there if you want. And those guys are coming, and and Novak is still around and still hungry, and you know Rafa is still going to be a factor on clay. So I just don't, I just don't see it. And I think he, but I don't think he knows that yet. But I, I've always felt from the last ten years or so that he's taken some private joy in proving people wrong, and he has repeatedly. People have been asking about retirement since two thousand nine, and I kid you not, it's been twelve years of retirement questions, even when the guy was you know still ready to keep rolling. So I just think he's got his own sense of confidence and he knows he's proven people wrong before. And I think he wants to follow his own timeline, but I don't think, I don't think he's going to find it's going to be uh, the kind of comeback he's looking for when he does come back. If he does. I appreciate that. Yeah. Like Serena has been, feels like he's been getting retirement questions forever. Uh, the la- here's the last one. And it's very specific to, um, to writing a tennis book. Um, internationally, my sense is that um, this book kind of promotes itself. Roger Federer is a global, global star um in the with a capital g um and you know known worldwide and there are certainly countries where tennis is massive and so i think people would be naturally interested in reading uh, a long-form examination about roger the u.s market chris is different um you know it's 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 the book market as you probably know and you'll learn obviously in the next couple months is just sort of just uniquely crazy itself and always hard to know what what book sort of uh, captures the public's attention or doesn't. And so I just wonder, um, because this is a sports media podcast and we do get into process and stuff, like, ha- have you thought about just like, what is the best way to to sell this book in the States? And is it very much to maybe target um, like the tennis specific audience as best as possible? Meaning like, you know, I assume when you're at the US Open, you, you know, you try to do book signings. You try to let people know. I, like I'm, I'm really just curious. Like I, I've seen people sell NFL and NBA books. I'm not sure what the best course of action is to sell a tennis book in the states. How do, you, how do you find like you're going to do it? Well, I wish I was an expert at that, Richard. I mean, that's just me. On me being, uh, this is my first major publisher book. I wrote several books early in my career that were more sort of yearbook style books. It's just my first crack at it. So, I, and I've been overseas, as you know, too, for a lot of my career. I spent you know 13, 14 years based over in Europe full time. So. I got a more international view of things, but I, I think what's interesting is that people around the country, and I have family on the West coast, you know, live part of the time on the East coast and traveled around a lot in recent years, different parts of the country. And everybody seems to know Federer and Nadal as well, but they know Federer. And I don't think, whereas a European audience maybe is very well versed in his biographical details, not to the degree of that I got into it probably, but they, they know the, the broad brush things. I, I don't think a lot of American general sports fans do. And I think there's a recognition that he's coming to the end of his career and that he's somebody who has been remarkable on a lot of levels. So I think there should be some curiosity. I, I imagine there's some curiosity as to how he did it, what, what his process was. And that's what I wanted to explore. But how you take it out there and market it, I think you got to hit, you know, hardcore tennis and rackets people for sure. And that's, that's got to be part of it in terms of, you know, you go to where they live, where they are. And but I think the, the most important thing right now is for me to cover the U.S. Open and to uh, try to talk to people like you as much as I can that have, you know, general reach to kind of get that word out there that this book exists. And this is a, an in-depth, a serious attempt to try to take a look at him and take the measure of him. And we'll see where it leads. But I think definitely the second phase of it is to go to a public that cares about tennis and has a deep connection to Roger in this country and, and try to uh, and reach them directly. Oh, well said. Every author I've ever talked to on this podcast has always said one, um, 
you know, don't be afraid to ask every single person you know, colleague, friend, et cetera, to let people know the book exists. Don't be shy about that. And the other thing is like uh, use your social media uh, accounts to the nth degree and, and, and don't feel shameless about promoting a book because like that's um, that's sort of part of the it's part of the charter. You got to, you know, it's not, they don't teach you that in journalism school, but the reality is you got to, you got to put the book in front of people and that's a very good way to do it. Um, all right, I'll tell you go what, ahead. I, yeah. I'll tell you, having not done this before, I, I'm feeling no qualms about <laughs> giving, making those calls because nice. this was a lot of work. This was a lot yeah. of, this was a real challenge for me. And I, I, in retrospect, I'm, I'm so glad I did it, but it was tough. It was tough to sum up this guy's rich career and all those interviews and all that sort of global breadth in the structure of the book and in the in the writing of the book. Well, both those parts were complicated and tough for me. So I really, uh, I'm not saying I'm proud of it, but I feel like I've, I've earned this thing that's in my hand that's got a certain heft to it because it was it was a challenge. Yeah, I'm glad you're putting it out there. I expect to see Chris Clary on TikTok doing dancing videos to promote the book. That's another right. benefit, but go ahead, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe you don't want to go that far. Chris Clary is the author of The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. Um, again, if you're a tennis fan or a tennis reader, uh, you've read his work. There's really nobody who's chronicled Federer uh, the way Chris Clary has in the New York Times. Chris, I wish you nothing but the best of luck uh, with the book. Um, I, I know tennis fans are going to enjoy it, and uh, we'll certainly be reading you. Uh, as we uh, as we hit the fortnight uh, a week uh, a week from today, uh, thanks so much for joining me on the uh, Sports Media Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to chat with you. All right, hey everybody, back in the studio. My thanks to Molly McGrath and Chris Clary for their insights and their honesty. I enjoyed uh, both of those conversations. If you like this kind of stuff, head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page uh, leave us a five-star review and a nice note that's how these uh, podcasts continue last couple of podcasts we had uh, the wwe seth rollins uh, who uh, took us behind the scenes on just how he does what he does including working with the media and promos and the athletic scott uh, doctorman who was at the field of dreams game in iowa and what that was like to be there in person before that uh, espn's david purdom on the intersection of gambling and sports media and Mirren fader who um has written uh, a book that's on the New York Times bestseller list now, her book on Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA MVP. And then before that, Rebecca Lowe of NBC Sports from Tokyo. Just head to the archives page. You'll probably find something you like if you like this kind of material. As always, my thanks to Patrick Antonetti for producing this podcast. Thank you to everybody at Cadence 13 for their support. And most importantly, thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.